Hello, looks unfamiliar listeners. It's Tim Worthington here, and what you're about to listen to is an edition of my other podcast, It's Good Except It Sucks. In case you haven't heard it, this is a podcast all about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but if you've never seen any of the films or the TV series, or you're just not that interested, don't let that put you off. For a start, you'll probably be familiar with most of the guests that have been on it, and also, I've tried to take an entirely different approach and tone for each film or show as appropriate, so you'll get everything from guests who own shelves full of collected Iron Man volumes to others who've never seen a Marvel movie before, to the extent of not actually even really being sure who Spider-Man is. So there's the whole range of viewpoints and perspectives, and even within that, there's all kinds of different responses to the different shows and films. From Miriam Kent giving a proper academic analysis with proper jokes at the same time, and Emma Burnell focusing on the actual act of going to the cinema to watch a movie, to Shanine Salmon weighing up the challenge of combining black cinema with mainstream blockbuster appeal, and Mick Wright looking at the implications of making a series about a psychotic vigilante in the then-current global climate, and from Ben Baker taking a considered look at one film's troubled production history to Phil Catterall hating one of the TV series so much that he's still not really forgiven me for making him watch it in full. There's all kinds of other names you might recognise as well, including Mitch Benn, Hannah Flint, Jim Sangster, Gareth Irons, Vicky Gregorich, Anna Kale, David Smith, Paul Abbott, Mark Griffiths, Mark Thompson, Melanie Williams, Gary Bainbridge, Stephen O'Brien, John Rame, Martin Ruddock, Gabby Hutchison Crouch, and more to come. And I show up as the guest a couple of times too, plus they're only short, so let's just say if you haven't seen Agent Carter, you're missing out. Also, Vincent D'Onofrio, who is Kingpin in the Netflix Marvel series, is a fan of the podcast as well, so if you don't listen, you'll have to answer to him. Anyway, this one is the edition covering Captain Marvel from 2019. If you've no idea who Captain Marvel is, long story short is that she was introduced into the comics in the late 70s in what was a largely successful attempt to reflect second wave feminism and possibly to the surprise of a lot of people, doubtless including Ken Loach, Martin Scorsese and Jennifer Aniston, the movie more than delivered on her long-standing reputation as a progressive character. I was aware we really needed to tackle the movie from that perspective, so I asked sci-fi novelist Duna McCormick to appear as the guest for this edition. Now, I've adored Captain Marvel since I was first given an issue with the Avengers with her in, aged I think around five to keep me quiet while we're moving house. Una was less familiar with her, but she's already enthused widely about the movie and the fact that it addressed quite a few aspects of genre fiction that have traditionally lacked a female perspective. So I knew it was going to be good, but even so, even while we're recording it, I really did get the feeling that we've managed to get something special out of this movie, and that's been borne out by the feedback that I've had since it went out. So while I don't really have a favourite edition of It's Good Except It Sucks, probably because I've tried to go in a different direction with each one, because of the importance of this movie and the sheer joy that we got out of chatting about it, I mean, Una saying Chef's Kiss is probably going to be one of your highlights of this, well, less than highlights junior year, I thought it deserved a wider platform, so... Whether you're interested in Marvel Cinematic Universe or not, I hope you enjoy this and stick around afterwards for a couple of highlights from some of the other shows. And with that, enough said. Let's talk about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow.
Hello, and welcome to It's Good Except It Sucks, a movie by movie and television series by television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time, we're taking a look at Captain Marvel, released in February 2019, when, if you preferred, you could have gone to see Ken Loach calling Tom Watson the biggest threat to the future of the Labour Party, Martin Scorsese's show-up Coca-Cola commercial, or Jennifer Aniston celebrating her 50th birthday with several of her exes instead. I'm Tim Worthington, and here's what I had to say about Captain Marvel when I live-tweeted my Marvel Cinematic Universe rewatch. A good solid film, despite what dim-wit men might have to say on the subject. The 90s period detail gags really add to it, none more so than the initial Kree Academy scenes, which look like something out of Tech War or the endless next-gen spin-offs. That's what I had to say about it, though, and joining me to give her thoughts on Captain Marvel is writer Una McCormack. Una, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Una McCormack, where I'm, I'm usually just being grumpy about things and, and swearing a bit, I think, like most people do on Twitter. Or else find me on my website, which is unamccormack.co.uk. So before we go any further, Una, what happens in Captain Marvel? What happens in Captain Marvel is that patriarchy is punched out. And that <laughs> makes me a very happy woman. <laughs> Is that a sufficient plot synopsis for you? That is, because that's exactly as it should be, and that's all I expected from this film. But Una, how much did you know about Captain Marvel before you saw it? I knew practically nothing. I know very, very, very little about the Marvel Universe. Partly, I think, because when I was a young girl in, back in the you know the distant times, I never really felt comics were for me. I felt they were a boy's thing, so I never got into them. One of my older siblings had some things like Fantastic Four comics, and I, I read those, and I really, really loved them, but I never felt like it was something... I could get into. So I never really got into the MCU either until I took on a PhD student, a creative writing student. She's writing an incredible fan fiction novel set in the MCU. And I took her on because I, I know a fair bit about fan fiction. I was supervising a novel and I thought, well, I'd better watch the Marvel Universe because, you know, <laughs> make an effort. And, and I've loved them. I've really enjoyed them. You know, I think some are better than others. I think a couple of the early ones are weak. But Captain Marvel, I uncomplicatedly think is completely brilliant. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that you thought comics weren't for you because the actual backstory with the... Well, it's better to say in terms of the comics that Carol Danvers' character because she's changed her name a number of times over the years, though as most consistently being Captain Marvel. But when she first appeared in the late 70s, it was a time when... I mean, they didn't always get it right, as I'll come back to in a second, but Marvel were always quite progressive, really mm. ahead of the time in a lot of ways. In the 70s, they started to bring in a lot of strong female characters and Ms. Marvel, as she was originally, was an attempt at doing, I suppose, a second wave feminism character. With the Ms. and everything, yeah, they're really trying there, aren't they? <laughs> well, they really were. The problem was, I won't dwell on this too much because I don't want to go into the details of it for various reasons, because, you know, people listen to this to be entertained, but it was mostly men writing it, and they got some things wrong, and they got one brave, daring storyline very, very horribly wrong. It wasn't done the right way at all. And the feminist writer Carole Strickland wrote a, you know, even as much as I love, and she loves comics herself, wrote a fantastic essay in the late 70s, taking down this storyline. You can now find it on her website where she's written a new introduction, basically saying, I stand by my point, but I'd argue it in a different way these days. But yeah. to be fair to everyone involved, it was an attempt to push things forward. And I remember being captivated by Ms. Marvel when I was really young, because she joined the Avengers quite quickly. And it seemed very, very different to have. I mean, you can't say Black Widow, Scarlet Witch, etc. weren't strong female characters, but to have somebody that independent 
as powerful as all the men. You know, because quite often yeah. the female ones didn't have abilities as such. Yeah, they, they just the, had skills. And it's telling that you said that, you know, there weren't women writers doing it because I think it's really, and this continues to be a problem, less so, I think, but continues to be a problem that works for all kinds of representation, is that you can be really well-meaning and be trying really, really, really hard and be compassionate and empathic and all round a complete mensch and you could still just get it really wrong <laughs> yeah and all it takes is for and it's not just one woman in the room actually because one woman in the room all the burden this goes for any group all the burden falls on them and it's hard you can't always be the outlier it needs to be a kind of swing in the pendulum a sort of a shift in gravity you need more than one to be able to say mm, not that or yeah i don't think so and not always for it to fall on the same person but it doesn't surprise me that they even trying they may have made some cock-ups <laughs> but i think generally the mcu on various representation fronts has more or less got that right and i mm. think captain marvel is one of the high watermarks of that and it sounds like you agree really which i'm really glad about i mean absolutely and as, as i say i'm not well versed i'm not i'm not going in with any particular accent i just want to watch films that don't make me feel well i just want to participate in arts and culture and literature that doesn't leave me feeling slightly rubbish as a woman <laughs> And a lot of what you have to do when you're sort of shoveling your way through any kind of art, culture, literature, is you kind of have to switch a little bit of yourself off and go, I've just got to ignore that frustrating thing or even that indignity or that thing that hurts me. Nothing about this film hurts me. I rewatched it the other day and I think the first 90 seconds, do you know, I could just sit and watch them. I could just sit and watch Annette Benning with that gun. It does something to my brain, it makes me feel better about things. I could just watch the two of them on screen, those opening 90 seconds, I just feel better for it. And that's even before we've got into everything about this film that I think is feminist. And it's just a delight. I never thought I'd see films like I never thought I'd see a mass market mainstream film that delivered like this and delivered so well. Ghostbusters does it. I haven't seen Mad Max Fury Road, which I think I ought to. Wonder Woman, I was disappointed for various reasons. I think it's not sufficiently. I think it hasn't been woman-centred in its creation to the same extent. But this just knocks it out of the park. It's brilliant. <laughs> There's an interesting background to the film just in itself anyway, because obviously, you know, Captain Marvel is one of the biggest characters in Marvel and she's conspicuous by her absence so far. I mean, my theory is that given that we're doing the Infinity Gauntlet storyline, that as she more or less does in the film that follows this, she could have just stopped it outright. Yeah, and I yeah. think that's why they held her back, because apparently very early on, there were plans for her to be in Avengers Age of Ultron, which were dropped. And also, at one point, she's considered to be a regular character in Jessica Jones, as in, mm. you know, she is one of Jessica's friends in the comics, and that was abandoned. And I think it was to hold her back, to give us that amazing ending to Infinity War, where Nick Fury calls her on his pager just as he disappears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a lovely moment being in cinema recognizing her logo and realizing yeah most of the people watching this won't know what that means woman is the weapon the woman is the game changer it's absolutely blissful you know uh, what do you want the weapon no i want the woman <laughs> she is the weapon that's what changes it that's what changes everything i have quite a funny story about not seeing captain marvel in the cinema i was really looking forward to it i booked imax tickets and i was really really looking forward i kind of blocked out an afternoon and during the course of the day i watched 
watched my other half develop a case of chicken pox, which meant that he couldn't go and do the school run. And I didn't get to see Captain Marvel at the cinema in IMAX as we kind of went, do you know, I don't think we can let you out of the house. So I always throw this in because he'd seen it at some festival in the States. He'd seen it. I, I didn't get to see it in the cinema. So I'm a, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit, it's a standing joke, but I always, I always bring it up. <laughs> It's a bit kind of foreshadowing what's happened now with all the Marvel films being pushed back because, you know, people can't really go to cinemas. And also it makes me think of, because I've recently recorded the Infinity War, Endgame, Spider-Man Far From Home ones, thinking that it isn't that long since I was in the cinema watching all of them. And it feels like a very long time ago now. It really, really does. I'm not sure I can actually remember the last film I saw in the cinema. I had a very busy February, so I wasn't really at the cinema much. The last thing I saw in a room with a large number of people with the lights out on a big screen was actually an episode of Doctor Who. That was fantastic. That was my last cinema experience. But I've no idea what the last film I saw in the cinema was. Might have been Rise of Skywalker, actually, So, which I liked. Well, I liked it as well. But I think it's quite good that we're coming back into Marvel more by accident than the design with the Black Widow film. Funnily enough, there's a link in that that is set in the past. And Captain Marvel, to my surprise, is set in 1995. And that's yeah. what I alluded to. There are bits of it that are deliberately designed to look like a sci-fi TV series from around them. But I also found that the 90s period detail in it and the references weren't laid on with a trowel. They were things that would get a laugh out of you from spotting them, like the Blockbuster yeah. video store, like the Hudsucker proxy in True Lies on the shelf in Blockbuster, yeah, like yeah. her using Alta Vista in a web cafe. Yeah, but they were yeah, things that they weren't kind of ha-ha-ha-ha-ha old things reference points. It was stuff that we were just used to. It just vanished because it became outmoded. I think that was a really clever way to go about it. And it's also, I think, it's asking us to, you're setting these two worlds against each other, aren't you? You're setting a sort of past about which we could be nostalgic, but we can't be nostalgic because she's having to put up with misogyny and having, you know, her attempt to become a pilot blocked she's putting up with it. it you know it's like all the nostalgia 70s stuff actually if you look at it with a clearer eye there's not much to be nostalgic about and at the same time we're being offered this vision of the Cree future which again could be tantalizing and something that we would buy into and we're being asked to look more carefully at that and understand what's going on underneath the surface so we've got these two worlds set against each other i think both of which have a powerful pull on our imaginations a kind of nostalgia for the past or our kind of utopian leanings for some sort of shiny future and we're being asked to say look at them and go well actually maybe neither of these are good enough and we need to think a little bit more carefully about what we're doing here so it's very clever and, and then obviously it's you know showing me the 90s i'm always going to be happy about so <laughs> <laughs> so i fall for it but then i also fall for the kind of shiny towers so you know but yeah it's saying tread carefully here and there's also the great soundtrack which is full mm. of people like hole elastica yeah Cheryl crow i've been listening I don't to think that Harvey's on the soundtrack on but she's on the poster yeah. in the background which is great yeah, and obviously Nirvana as well. So no, it's I mean it's a fantastic, fantastic soundtrack. So it's really, really good. One of the things they do straight away, opening in the kind of Cree setting, is we see her as part of a really quite a diverse team. So there's other women around her. There's you know various you know she is human, but people are from other species. So we see her as part of a sort of diverse team.
seem very active and all these sort of things. So again, I mean, part of the point of the film is that our expectations are being played with over this. We're being shown a sort of tempting vision of the future, which we're then asked to unpeel. The other interesting thing about that, again, would it be the same for anyone who didn't really know? But certainly subverted my expectations were, you mentioned the Cree, who basically mm-hmm. in the comics were effectively more or less the good guys. They were, you know, the Superman okay. from outer space who yeah. did beneficial things. And the Skrulls, who were the other alien race, and this was sort of, you know, embittered, angry, lashing out. And they kind of flipped that here because the Cree are kind of Nietzschean supermen. They consider, yeah. I mean, this goes through things like Guardians of the Galaxy and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as well. What yeah. they want is all that matters. And the Skrulls, they are downtrodden. They're desperate. They're like refugees almost, but they still have a humanity and logic that they do not have yeah. in the comics. I think that is such a clever spin on it. And I think both are really being set up for the future of the films. That's really going to work, I think. It's very, very good. It reminds me of a, this very good short story by William Gibson called The Gernsback Continuum. The conceit of it is that the futures that were imagined in sort of 1930s pulp magazines come true. But actually, when you look at those, they were sort of Nietzschean white supremacist fantasies yeah <laughs> it's actually a really unpleasant future and I think I think it's doing exactly the same thing it's obviously making us think about refugee crises around the world and what I think is a really nice touch is the makeup of the scroll again you sort of see the influence of Peter Jackson visually on these they look like the orcs who are completely othered in those movies. I mean, I think the orcs in those movies are probably get a worse deal than they do in the books, and it's not great in the books. But in this, you're being absolutely asked, even if you have no sort of knowledge of the comics, you're being absolutely asked to interrogate your instinctive reaction to something that's different, which is all to the good, I think. That's the whole point of the film, is sort of overturning that and finding commonality where you wouldn't expect it. Very, very nicely done, sort of sought through and designed, and those twists work really well. It's even down the cat isn't it no it's not a cat yes i wanted to mention goose the flirkin who stole my heart in this film i mean i was familiar with goose anyway and i do have a lego captain marvel jet plane which has goose in it in the secret compartment but goose just adds another element to it oh no it's beautifully done oh yeah i mean we all you know i I wish i could secretly explode my head and fling (laughs) a load of tentacles at people i mean (laughs) some people might say i do (laughs) that's a great bit when the scrolls spot goose goose and just leap back shouting Whoa. ah it's a flirking yeah, yeah. and you're waiting for the eye to go as well you're waiting for fury's eye and you think it's gone and oh no 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 and yeah. then, oh, no, it's, the cat. <laughs> it's the cat that does it yeah because we do get to see nick fury and phil coulson from shield in much younger versions of themselves done very very well actually it does actually really look like the young samuel l jackson on screen i do wonder if the young clark greg has always looked the same <laughs> he's got that that kind of face and expression but it's really well done and it fills in a lot of the backstory to where Nick Fury's idea for the Avengers came from where a lot of the kind of operational things that are already in place at the start of the MCU kind of originated it was just nice as we came towards the end of it and they weren't going to feature in Endgame to give them a bit of recognition there I really appreciated that and that moment where he looks at her picture and sees what her call sign was and deletes 
the Protector Initiative deletes that and put Avenger. I was punching the air. That is one of the most feminist moments of the film for me because he literally inscribes a woman, the name of a woman at the birth of the Avengers project. It's a really radical moment. I think it's absolutely great because there's lots of debates and these go through all fandoms. There are books written on this about how, you know, oh, there were never any women there. There were never any fans of colour. There were never, well, no, they always were there. They might not have had their voices heard. They might have been overlooked. Their histories might not have been documented, but they were always there. Writing her name in as Captain, you know, Captain Marvel, Avenger, there at the birth. It's a really, really radical moment that I think is, I assume, is specifically aimed at the kind of people that would look at this film and go, oh, it's just a social justice warrior film. You know, it's saying to them, look, guys, you're the ones that get your bite nicked and are left standing on the sidewalk while the superheroes go off and have the adventure. Yeah. There are several moments in this film where you just go, whoa, you've really understood what you're doing. That's one. The other one is where uh, Yon Rog is sort of going, oh, you have come so far. You've learned so much. Now I believe you are ready to fight me as an equal. And she's like, we're not even, we are so far past this. <laughs> but what are you talking? The words coming out of your mouth are irrelevant. We don't even need to see that happen. He, he's been a mentor. He goes straight to irrelevance. It's a kind of beat that I think looking at some of the reviews that some of the reviewers just didn't get this moment at all and it's absolutely crucial it shows you exactly how far she's come bop him against the wall but he's a flea well another really important thing that i don't think the full relevance of has really been made clear to people yet is that again this is something where i was really excited when i noticed this and i remember almost babbling it to my sister after we saw the film and she didn't quite understand what was going on about but obviously carol reconnects with maria rambo who was her best friend and colleague in the air force and maria's daughter monica now monica rambo is again one of the most significant female marvel characters one of the first proper fully fledged black superhero characters they had was captain marvel herself at one point right yeah she's going to be featured as an adult in the disney plus series starting from wandavision i think to have monica and her attitude on board is a real step forward i think i mean i just want to see because she's one of my favorite characters but i think people are going to be taken as equally by surprise as how powerful in both senses she is in it and this is the kind of thing that i would not know i still take a phenomenal amount of power from seeing that relationship on screen well all of those relationships actually that whole nexus of female relationships that you see the powerful mentor that they've had in marvel or lawson she isn't she and then you see the strength of the bond of the female friendship and the mutual support that they've given each other in this really quite hostile environment and also you see the daughter and now i've got so she's kind of you know monica for me was symbolizing young women girls watching this movie but now i know there's kind of like a you know real context you know further context to it but i think what this nexus of women's relationships gives a a sort of greater integrity to the world of the film. Um, Joanna Ross, the feminist science fiction writer, talks about how you don't see many women. She's writing in the 70s. You don't see many women in science fiction. You see the image of women in science fiction. But when you get actual women, the story world unfolds and you have to take into account things like, well, who's doing the childcare? Who's doing the cooking? Who's doing the washing up? And you see all of this on screen in Captain Marvel. You see, you know, 
there's a single mother you see how obviously carol has been supportive in you know helping bring up that girl just as a you know someone there to support her you see them doing washing up there's lots of these sort of warp and weft moments that are the conditions of possibility which mean that superheroes can fly off into the night and that's another reason i think it's a feminist film they put the women on screen they put the women's stories on screen but they also put the full world on screen, which is a, a logical corollary of having female characters. It's absolutely brilliant. It's really good. Keep the Tesseract on Earth. Hidden. You sure that's what Marvel would want? Marvel. That's what I said. It's two words. Marvel. Marvel. Marvel sounds a lot better. You know, like the Marvelettes. Wait, oh yes, wait a minute, Mr. Postman. Wait, Mr. Postman. Not ringing any bells? Keep singing, maybe it'll come back to me. I upgraded it. Range should be a couple galaxies at least. What? You think I'm gonna crank call you? For emergencies only, okay? It's going to get even bigger because again, coming up on Disney Plus, it's going to be a series of the current Ms. Marvel, Kamala Khan, who's basically a Muslim teenager who was a Carol Danvers fangirl who accidentally acquired powers while being a fan of this great feminist superhero oh, icon. This so is, this is singing to my heart. <laughs> this is. <laughs> absolutely brilliant I, I did know about this character actually but I, yeah that that's absolutely great oh I'm loving that yeah good because we've not really seen that and that fangirl experience has been such a major part of my life and I've never really seen it you know we've we see more positive representations perhaps of, of, of male fans I mean Galaxy Quest obviously I think it's a big disservice that Joss Whedon does is in Buffy is turning the fans into you know the big bad but that kind of fangirl thing I've, I've seen a couple of novels and things but I've never seen it sort of positively represented and, you know, thought through and, and mediated and, and mythologised in its own way. I'm really excited about that. Well, I feel a bit guilty now to be turning things back towards a man, but we can't get away from the fact that the film opens with a tribute caption to Stan Lee. And yeah, he makes, true. technically, his very last cameo in it. I mean, there is the Endgame one after it and kind of virtual ones in some more of the Netflix series and so on. But I understand this is the last one filmed. I can't decide whether this is breaking the fourth wall or not because Stan's character across all the films is baffling as to whether he understands what's going on or not. But Carol is looking for a scroll on a train, checking yeah. various people, and she comes across Stan Lee reading the script for his cameo in Mole Rats. And he looks at it in kind of almost like a fatherly way. Yeah, yeah. And actually, when they reissued, shortly after Endgame was first out, it was reissued to cinemas with a new introduction, basically saying, thank you for making the highest grossing film ever. They put some new bits in a kind of mini feature slot, one of which is Brie Larson, paying tribute to Stan Lee. And it was absolutely heartstring tugging. You know, somebody that I assume maybe she even only met him that one time. But yeah, it really, yeah. really struck me. But it's just so lovely, though, that it's a world within the world. He is referencing a film 
that existed at that time that he was in it just hurts your head oh yeah i mean it's it's just an absolutely lovely bit and even someone who's not as informed about marvel as i am i i am always looking out to see stan lee there and then that whole bit at the start is just it's it's just all lovely isn't it that you'd have to be hard of heart not to be sniffling a bit of that i think well of course we do get the two customary post credit scenes which are both fascinating in their own way one cuts back to the avengers between infinity war and then or rather what's left of the avengers looking at the pager trying to work out what it's doing when suddenly it stops working and they're just discussing what to do about it stopping working when captain marvel appears behind them basically just barks where's fury (laughs) that is a great moment of reminding you what's about to happen yeah it's the game changer isn't it the serious weapons are here now the big guns have arrived yeah we're we're not messing about any longer she looks she's playing it really differently they've styled her differently there's something a bit more somber about her. you think this is probably someone who's who's seen a war now just want a a shout out for her performance actually because i think she's very very centered throughout you just see this sort of steady rising there's always a kind of confidence to her but you just see it sort of steadily being released and freed and come out from constraints until she's just i'm getting tingly talking about it she's just powerful and it it's just beautiful it's not it's not a sudden tip or anything like that. It's a steady, slow burn. And it's been a slow burn from when she was a very young girl. It's not just the encounter with the strange that's made this happen to her. This is a slow burn that's happened from when she was very small. And then you see her come into her full powers and it's chef's kiss. It's wonderful. And I would say the last word goes to, but technically it's the last retching sound goes to Goose, who earlier in the film had eaten the Tesseract, you know, the, the cube with the space stone in, and yep. just regurgitates it back as if coughing up a hairball onto Nick Fury's desk, starting everything that's going to kick off happening. It all comes from a cat being sick. And <laughs> <laughs> so much does in life. I think it's a really interesting spin on Fury as well. I think it's really interesting what they do with him in this film, that he's he's the buddy, he's the he's the psychic. He's almost the comic relief. He's almost sort of, um, for Blake Seven fans, he's almost the villa to her Avon, you know? <laughs> yeah. She's the hero here. You know, he's the he's the guy going, you know, it's going to take four minutes for this to download. <laughs> You're the one with the shiny fists. It's just played really, really well because, you know, we see a very, very different fury in the other films. But this is someone this is someone and he just contains that performance. Uh, there's something very, very likable about big stars containing their performance to let somebody else become the the star of their movie but you know she is giving this great performance but he is supporting it he, he is he's making her the star of this movie it's a really really good and generous performance i love seeing him as the sidekick it's absolutely great and then you've got i guess you've got two other guys as well haven't you you've got jude law who's who goes from you know most important figure in her life to irrelevance you've got ben mendelson's character who i i think of sort of i think of him as her peer in a way she is going to be joining his battle he's got to convince her of his truth but she's also got to convince him that she is not what she was and we see him embedded in a family situation as well i think she's also very interesting so he, he again were being shown that the truth of these stories is that they take place within a wider context 
there are children and non-fighters, non-combatants embroiled in these wars as well. It's a lovely performance from him as well. And Ben Mendelsohn as Talos and Captain Marvel will be back in the near future, which is great. And to be honest with you, a Blake 7 analogy is all I've ever <laughs> wanted out of any of these. So there's just one thing left <laughs> me to ask done. now. Una, if you had cosmic abilities derived from energy absorption and projection, what would you use them for? I would use them for good. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely ambiguously stated. (laughs) Una, thank you, and Excelsior. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this, don't forget you can find more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks at timworthington.org, including all of the following. It was part of a kind of whole chain of TV series at that time, that partly because of the possibilities that platforms like Netflix and HBO offered, kind of presented this scary kind of patriarchal white man who, you know, by the end of the series is, you know, hopefully eliminated. And that kind of spoke to the series sort of wider positioning as feminist, whatever that kind of meant within those discussions. But it definitely kind of depended on stuff like Orange is the New Black. You had things like Kimmy Schmidt also going on on Netflix, things like Big Little Lies. It was a whole kind of trend at that time where you had these kind of overtly sort of feminist goals incorporated and the key kind of antagonist or villain would be this kind of scary patriarchal man who needed to kind of be expunged by the end of it. But that's not to kind of downplay the important issues that it kind of uses to kind of make its points and explore the way that this guy's powers work, because it is like a matter of he makes you do anything and the way it's portrayed is that the people who it affects don't want to do these things and they know they don't want to do these things but they have to do them anyway so there's these great little kind of nuanced moments throughout the series where he's just a nightmarish guy and then that's what's good because it matches what it was actually like you know women at single women at that time you know there were specific rules about who they could have back i mean you can read it in so many so many books i think it reminds me of like sylvia plath when she's talking about like the kind of place that she was saying and men weren't allowed in and i think it's just it's just that kind of culture shock isn't it you've seen her in action you know standing her ground next to steve rogers getting respect from tommy lee jones's colonel i can't remember his name right now but you know you see that and then for her to be thrown back into the mix of it and and realize actually recognizing what the kind of gender politics and gender inequality of the time in 1940s america that's the thing she hasn't got people around her anymore she hasn't got the steves and all that and after the war's ending it's like well what do they expect of women at the time they had to go back they were in the factories <laughs> building you know they were the one taking up these male roles and then it's kind of like well war's over what happens now and it's interesting because that obviously kind of pushes forward the kind of female empowerment and feminism that came through afterwards to show that women don't want to be thrown back into domestic sphere so i think it's interesting that it touches upon those elements and it had to you know you couldn't do a series where it didn't touch upon that it'd just be you know it's agent carter peggy carter you can't do a series that isn't kind of a deep feminist theme and undertone to it in pretty much all aspects of her life the scene with maximus getting rid of medusa's hair is in that comic that i talked about the, the paul jenkins one but it's it's like the end of the second act start of the third act so it's it's kind of a big deal at that point and also in the comic he does it with scissors whereas in this he seems to have bought some hair clippers from like <laughs> boots or something they don't look particularly futuristic or spacey it's like where where did you get those max where did they come from because it just it doesn't it's a weird thing to be annoyed about but it doesn't fit with the aesthetic of anything else in that moon city oh also gorgon whose main power is having goat legs they just have him put shoes on halfway through the first episode and then. <laughs> 
you they never render those legs again do they it's it's just he's he's wearing shoes <laughs> and i guess triton was difficult to do as well because he was green so let's sort of nearly kill him at the start of the first episode and have him reappear in like the last two anything that would have been significant effort over and above lockjaw is just kind of done away with as quickly as possible which is tiresome and it's kind of mixing that because i think it's the idea that yes wakanda is is very african but it's an Africa that isn't, it could exist, but it doesn't really. So you have, what I found really interesting when I was rewatching it last week was the landscapes. So as you said, you've got the Afrofuturistic, which kind of looks like SimCity and doesn't really work as well. But actually what I really like, there's a scene when they're walking through the market and you've got people with like blue Afros and, you know, what I mean, it feels really thriving and you get that sense that this is kind of a very hot country, but it isn't a generic African country. It's kind of saying, well, actually there's nothing, particularly as we go forward there's nothing why re, no reason why countries in Africa can't look like Wakanda because their economies are growing and they're doing all these things so it's not it doesn't portray Africa in the way that you've probably seen Africa which is these poor countries that are developing and you know wars and all those kind of things it actually seems quite steady and it's a nice depiction of the continent and the people within it too Daredevil introduced us to the idea that we're going to give you R-rated violence and then Punisher went oh yeah you you thought that was tough right now i'm good you know every episode is gonna up the brutality i've always liked jigsaw in the comic i think like he's a great anti-hero villain type character the notion also of like the face like mirroring the broken mind it's just great and also it's a kind of horribly dark metaphor now when we live in a time when we bring a lot of soldiers back with broken minds like that you could write a very long and interesting essay about jigsaw as a as a metaphor for what are described in peep show as blair's oil wars but also i mean this is again where i feel really underqualified many of these things would just completely pass me by particularly references forward or they just elude me the good thing about this film i felt is that i could watch it on its own terms without feeling like i wasn't getting it because i didn't get all the illusions it worked as a film in and of itself as well as a component of this much bigger cinematic universe but it was like massively enjoyable without knowing about all the things that it's going to lead to and that it kind of interacts with i do appreciate that you know i like a kind of good blockbuster experience where i'm not left feeling puzzled and confused and bewildered by not quite getting Ms. what's Marvel going Lee's on we'll be coming back in one division on disney plus he lands it a different dimension as well and you know there's cassie scott's daughter and his ex and her new husband who as i mentioned in that tweet actually quite like scott they want to see him do well they want to see him back with hope that brings me on to i think why this film connected with me so much i mean there does seem to be a slight downer on it which is weird because it's got one of the highest aggregate appreciations of any marvel film yeah and i think it's because i found a lot to relate to in it because it came out almost exactly the same time as i was sort of in the same position as scott and hope i was pushed back into the dating world at the same kind of age as them with the same kind of other things to weigh up in my life it just really resonated with me the fact that you know they're in that place where it's not the be all and end all of your life it's something that you do in between the other stuff you have to do yeah and you form an attachment to somebody but you have what aren't quite rows as such they're just extended not talkings and it later turns out that the main 
main reason Hope got into the massive strop with Scott was when he went off to fight in Civil War, he didn't ask her to come with him, which is a really touching moment. It really works so well. I mean, there's that brilliant bit where it only lasts a couple of seconds, but they decide to start kissing when they're trapped in the store cupboard in the school. Long story about why they're at the school. <laughs> but they keep setting up each other's size regulators to go smaller and bigger, which is fantastic. And I'm also glad that you clarified that, that you know, the, the similar position you found yourself in was being thrust back into the dating world because I didn't recall you being held under house arrest for having a big fight at a German airport so well that's kind of half true about lockdown you know (laughs) (laughs) that's one thing I'll say there was a comedy bit quite early on where Scott's finding ways to entertain himself during lockdown you know trying to learn card tricks close up magic trying to learn the drums and so on people were screaming laughing at that when I saw it in the cinema right now it rings a bit hollow (laughs) it really does I mean I talked about this film relating to my actual life that felt a bit too close for comfort when I rewatched it recently. <laughs> no, that's that's fair enough.